0: Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that if necessary, you can uh, confess your sins in the privacy of your soul to God the Father, and at which time you are instantly forgiven, restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and then we can begin our study of His Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come together to study your word, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that it is your word that illuminates our thinking so that we can understand reality as it is, as you have created it, that we can understand ourselves as we are, as fallen creatures, that we can understand you as you are and as you have revealed yourself to us and all that you have provided for us. Father, we thank you for the privilege and freedom to gather together. We continue to pray for our nation, for its safety, for our leaders, that you would guide and direct them and also confound our enemies. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you might be glorified in its teaching and that we might be challenged by what we learn today as we study under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I stated in the first hour... For the next several weeks, there's going to be an interesting correlation between what we are studying in 1 Corinthians and what we're studying in 1 John. As you all know, as we've gone through 1 John, one of the key ideas in this, in chapter 3 especially, but throughout 1 John, is the concept of abiding in Christ as the necessary, uh, condition for growing to maturity, for producing uh, spiritual fruit and spiritual growth. that That's related to what his, Paul refers to as walking by the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. John calls it walking in the light as well. But all these terms relate to one another. And they refer to our experiential growth, the experiential development of our spiritual life and our understanding of God and application of doctrine. On the other hand, there's another part of the spiritual life that we get at salvation. That's what is called positional truth or positional realities. That is who and what we are in Christ, as Paul uses that, that particular phrase. And part of what we have in Christ is that we are indwelt at the instant of salvation by God the Holy Spirit. We are also indwelt by God the Son and God the Father. All three members of the Trinity take up their residence in us. But what is the relationship between the positional indwelling of the members of the Trinity and the experiential fullness, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the abiding in Christ? Well, that is what we're going to be exploring, especially in uh, 1 Corinthians, because this passage, the foundation for part of this, is where we are in 1 Corinthians 3.16, understanding that we are all indwelt by uh, God the Holy Spirit, as he constructs a temple uh, in us for the dwelling of the Shekinah glory of Christ, the dwelling of Christ, rather, in the church-age believer. That is the foundation for what we call abiding. So that is how the two relate, and there's going to be a, some interesting correlation and in development of doctrine as we compare these two subjects in the next few weeks. Well, open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. 1 John 3:24 and I want to take some time to go back and review where we have come from in 1 John and then say some things about the last verse of chapter 2 before we get into the next chapter. That will help set the stage a little bit. Remember, John is a John has a fascinating style in the Greek, and he doesn't have uh, the short introductions like Paul does, and then the majority of the epistle is the main body. Instead, he he has a very lengthy introduction, uh, starting in chapter one. The introduction really begins in one one and goes down to chapter two verse twenty seven. He has a prologue in the first four verses. Where he introduces the theme of fellowship. Verse 3, he states that that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So he is writing and introducing this theme of fellowship, and that's a major emphasis, is how the believer can experience fellowship with God. And fellowship brings in the whole concept of, of intimacy with God. And this is something that is progressive. It is not an absolute. We talk about spirituality as an absolute. We're either walking by the Spirit or we're walking according to the sin nature. We're either in fellowship or out of fellowship. But but that term, in fellowship, isn't strictly a a biblical term. What we have in, in Scripture is a term, having fellowship. And as we grow and advance, that fellowship that we enjoy, that fellowship that we have with God, deepens and matures until it reaches a fullness of joy, which is what he refers to in chapter 1, verse 4. You might compare this to, as we talk about three stages of the spiritual life, you have the stage of spiritual infancy, spiritual childhood, the second stage of spiritual adolescence, and the third stage of spiritual uh, maturity, you might compare that to developing a, a romantic relationship with your spouse. Uh, if you can remember back that for some of you. Um, when you're dating, you only know your spouse partially, uh, you only knew them partially at that time. You would go out maybe on a Friday night or a Saturday night initially and, and you saw them periodically. Perhaps if, uh, if you were older and lived uh, by yourself at some time and and you would see one another's dwelling places they would know you were coming over so they'd be spruced up and clean and you didn't realize until after you were married that they were uh, really a slob or something like that see see the knowledge that you have during that that dating period is only partial it's it's incomplete you're just getting to know certain things about the person that's like spiritual childhood we have a a knowledge of god that is in some sense it, it, that fellowship is partial we're we're out of fellowship more than we're in fellowship we're walking by the by the according to the flesh more than we're walking uh, by the spirit we're just learning doctrine we're learning the basics of the faith rest rule we're learning basic pr- principles and promises, we're learning doctrine and just beginning to orient our thinking to the Word of God until we hit spiritual adolescence, and that's sort of like that stage of of um, being engaged, that betrothal period where you spend a lot more time together, but you're still not spending time together 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so during that time, your your knowledge, your intimacy goes to a new level. And then you finally get married, and then you're living with each other 24 hours a day, and suddenly you discover your wife snores. Oh, no, ladies never snore, do they? Oh, you begin to discover all kinds of interesting things about your, your spouse, that, that you only, if you knew them, it was only academic knowledge before you began to live together. And now it's experiential knowledge. But there's that, that intimacy of spending that time 24 hours a day, 7 days a week together, that, that only comes when you reach a certain level of maturity in the relationship. And that is a, is roughly analogous to the, the growth of fellowship that takes place as the believer advances, that there is a, there are degrees in our fellowship with God. Fellowship is, while we have fellowship, we're in a place of fellowship uh, as an absolute because we're walking by the Spirit or we're not. While we're in that place of fellowship, abiding in Christ, then our understanding of God uh, advances. So John introduces this theme of fellowship in the prologue, in the first four verses and then he gets into the introduction itself starting in verse 5 of chapter 1 going down through 227 and in this section he introduces key ideas that he's going to develop in the main body of the um, of the epistle. He talks about the importance of advancing in the spiritual life based on fellowship with God and abiding in Christ and those terms are introduced in th- this introduction. He also talks about knowing God, and there we learn that knowing God for John does not equal salvation, but it equals an advance in our understanding of doctrine and our relationship with God, that you can be saved and you can even reach a certain level of growth and still not know God. That we saw was evidenced by the disciples the night before Jesus goes to the cross. He tells Philip, he says, have you been with me all this time and you don't know me? Uh, so it indicates that you can even spend time in fellowship, time growing and maturing and yet not reach that stage that John would call truly knowing God. We grow in our understanding of doctrine, we grow in our understanding of God, and eventually we get to that point where we have a more intimate, ongoing relationship. The term that describes all of this is that, is abiding. Abiding, it is not a term for salvation. In some Bibles it will say that um, all believers abide, but that's not true. We have seen that this is an experiential term. Sometimes we're abiding in Christ, sometimes we're not abiding in Christ. And if you don't understand that key word, then you can easily misunderstand or misinterpret many of the things that John says in this epistle. He reaches the main body of the epistle, In 1 John 2 verse 28, and there he introduces the main theme. Verse 28 he says, And now little children abide in him. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So he is focusing on the main command, present active imperative, which indicates that this should be a primary characteristic and habit pattern in the believer's life. We are to abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. That's the theme in this next section is how can you live your life so that when Jesus Christ appears, you will have confidence in the judgment seat of Christ. If you want to know the answer to that question, that's what... First John is all about how we can have confidence at the appearance of Christ. Now, John uses a variety of styles and words to emphasize his themes. His, his writing we have found over the last four years as we've studied the Gospel of John and now First John is at times extremely subtle. And often what he appears to be saying in the English translations is the exact opposite of what he is saying in the original Greek. And that's due to the fact that many translators are reading a, their um, preconceived theological ideas into the text rather than letting John speak for himself. You see, John writes in simple Greek, but he doesn't write in a simple style. And, and I, I read through this again and again. And it's just amazing how he weaves words and themes and ideas um, back and forth in order to emphasize uh, these various ideas. Now, let's look at our passage today. I want to just read through the verses and then come back and tie some things together contextually. 1 John 3, verse 24 reads, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that He, that is Jesus, abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know, that this, know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Okay, we'll stop there. It will probably take us a few weeks to get through that. What you think you understand from those verses, let me warn you right now, you is probably wrong. The subtleties of John here are just incredible. It's it's you know this is the kind of thing I just love doing, not after I've spent eight hours working on a workday here though. So uh you got things got a little foggy last night and early this morning as I'm wrestling through the text again trying to pull this together. Uh let's look at how John John uh ties some of these ideas together. We we uh, see that in, in let's go back to first John two twenty eight. John introduces a key word here in 2.28. What John is going to do is he uses a literary device that, that authors frequently use called an inclusio. And, you know, it's really fun to learn all these little grammatical things because the writers of Scripture are not just Slopping this stuff down on paper or down on a scroll and then sending it off. It shows a tremendous amount of thought went into the writing of these epistles. And they are well crafted. They are excellent literature. In an inclusio, what a writer will do is he will often introduce a theme and he may use a particular word. We'll just designate it with the letter A. And then, and it may be a word or a phrase. And then at the end of a little section, he will repeat that same word or phrase, and then you won't see that word or phrase in the next section. And what he's doing is he's marking this section off, and maybe anywhere from one verse to, you know, eight or nine verses, as, as a subsection of thought. And see, the key word that you see in verse 28 down to 310a, this is going to be really important to watch this is in the Greek word the verb and the noun form is phanero, phaneroo, p h a n e r o o Now this is variously translated in your English versions as manifest or appear let me point this out to you Jesus uh, John says in 1 John 2:28 uh, abide in him that when he appears, that's that's Fanarao. Then verse one of chapter three, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God, therefore the world does not know us because it did know him. Verse two Beloved, now we are children, and it has not yet been revealed. There's our word. It also is translated revealed. So we see it again in um in three two. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. So we see it twice in 3.2. And then in verse 3, everyone who has his hope in, in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was, what? Manifested. There it is again in verse, in verse 5. Manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. He who, and there it should be translated, he who does righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was what? Manifested. That's verse 8. He was manifested that he would destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains or abides in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Verse 10a. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, revealed. 10a. Now stop right there. That's two, three, four, five times we have a form of phonorao. That tells us that the theme here is on manifestation and what Paul is, in, I mean what John is emphasizing is we need to be ready to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's emphasized by the repetition of those words. Now, if we look at verse 10, you will notice that it says, That that there's a colon there. The way it's probably translated in your Bible is, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Now this is another important grammatical insight that that is gonna uh, seriously affect the interpretation of this passage. When you look at your English Bible, there is a colon after obvious or manifest. Now, what has happened is that the translator has made a decision, and that is the decision is that that what this refers to comes after the phrase. By this, and then he's going to tell us what it is. Now, we'll notice this as we go through here. John's style is this. When he says, by this you will know something, if he's talking about what's coming, he uses a subordinate explanatory clause. But most of the time, he's talking about what he just said. Now that's really important because if you if you don't get that right, you're going to create some real interpretive problems in First John and some tremendous confusion. See, the way this was divided, and and you all know, that the writers did not have chapters or verses when they wrote this. In fact, the verses were added by a guy named um, Robert Etienne, or anglicized as Robert Stevens, who was a Greek scholar in the 1650s while he was riding horseback from Paris to Lyon in France. So I think he's, you know, made a few mistakes here and there where he divided the verses. In verse 10a we read, or right, let's go back to verse 9. Verse 9 says, "...whoever has been born of God does not sin." And we've already seen that what that emphasizes is that when the believer is abiding in Christ, he doesn't sin. Just as Paul said in Galatians 5.16, "...when you're walking by the Spirit, you will not bring to completion the, the works of the flesh." That's the same thing that Paul's saying, I mean, John's saying here in verse 9. Whoever's been born of God doesn't sin for his seed, that is God's seed, abides in him, abiding remembers fellowship, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. That's emphasizing, um, abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit. And then in verse 10, he says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are apparent. By what? By the fact that they don't sin. When you are sinning, you have chosen not to walk by the Spirit and you're walking according to the sin nature. When you are not sinning and walking by the Spirit, then you are walking in dependence upon him. And while you're walking by the Spirit, you it's impossible, Paul said, to sin. You have to choose to stop walking before you can sin. Now this is if you don't understand these two verses, you're gonna really blow it when you get to the end of the chapter and end of first First John 4, because I want you to also notice the phrase that, that it's the children of God and the children of the devil. Now, what we want to do is we want to naturally take those terms as believers versus unbelievers. But that doesn't fit the context, because John is not contrasting those who are believers versus those who are unbelievers. He's talking about believers, and he's saying some believers op, act like children of God, and they abide, and they don't sin, and other believers sh- still act as they did before they were saved, and they're acting like children of the devil, and they're not abiding, and they're not sinning, and that is inconsistent with their new position in the royal family of God. They've been born into a new family, and they ought to live like they're in this new family, but they're living like they're still in the old family of the devil. That's what he's talking about here. So the phrases of God and of the devil are not soteriological, but they have to do with the ultimate source of the value system and the information that they're operating on in their Christian life. Now, we're going to get into those same kind of genitival phrases in 1 John 4. But the the key word... The key word this hinges on is understanding abide, and we've gone through it again and again, so I'm not going to take the time now, but abide never talks about an absolute position as a believer. It's talking about a believer is either in fellowship and abiding, or he's not. It's not a term for to indicate salvation. Okay, now... If we look at the grammar here, we understand that that phrase, by this, refers back to the principle of verse 9. And then there is a shift in subject in the second half of verse 10. When you see the phrase in your Bible, whoever does not practice righteousness, or anyone who does not practice righteousness, put a mark in there, put a paragraph mark in there to indicate that's the start of a new subsection. Notice he says, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So John is correlating the practice of righteousness, not positional righteousness, but experiential righteousness, with what? With loving his brother. Now what becomes the theme here? Remember I just went through a little discourse here where we looked at an inclusio. The first inclusio we saw was manifest, the word fanarao, in 2.28 and repeated again in 2.10a. The next inclusio focuses on the word love, loving one another, in 3.10b, and you see it repeated again in 3.24 or 323 Look down at 323. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So you see what's happened here is he, he talks about one thing. He talks about manifest. And then he changes the subject, and now he's talking about love. And all through that section, from, from 10b down to 23, again and again he talks about love, how we know love. And, and take a look. He says, by this we know love. Now, I can hear somebody's thinking there say, Robbie, you just said that when Paul, John uses the phrase, by this, he's talking about what goes before. He By this refers to what goes before unless it's followed by a subordinate clause, explanatory clause. And in verse 16, we have, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. See, the because there makes that a subordinate explanatory clause. So when John uses an explanatory subordinate clause, the by this is what comes after. But when he has it in an independent clause, it refers to what goes before. Now that I've thoroughly confused you with grammar, let's go on. So, 10b through verse, through verse 23 forms an inclusio on the subject of loving one another. And then we come to verse 24 and he shifts to a new subject, the one who keeps his commandments. See, he's building off of what he just finished saying in verse 23, and he's going to introduce a new subject, that we should love one another as he gave his commandments. So the one who keeps his commandments then abides in him. See, that can't be talking about salvation. Because salvation is not by works, it's not by obedience. So abiding can't be talking about salvation. It must be talking about your experience in the Christian way of life. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. Now, take this back, and for those of you who are here first hour, let's plug something, this, into what we concluded with this morning. Israel is indwelt... Positionally by the Shekinah glory of God in the holy of holies of the temple. If they're obedient keeping God's commandments, then because they have the indwelling of the Shekinah glory, they will be blessed. That's the Mosaic law. If they're disobedient, they're going to be cursed or judged. Now that, 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 the, the presence of the Shekinah glory in the temple is positional truth. What they do with the commandments of God determines whether or not they experience blessing or cursing. That's the same thing John's getting at here, is that positionally we're indwelt by God the Son, and we're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, and our bodies become the base for that temple that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.13. So here we have John saying, if you keep his commandments and you're abiding in him, then that's a place of spiritual growth and spiritual blessing. But just as Israel also disobeyed, even though they had the positional place of blessing with the indwelling of the Shekinah in the Holy of Holies, when they disobeyed, they were under judgment, and they lost blessing eventually when they were taken out under the fifth cycle of discipline. So that's that correspondence between uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So John is saying here, he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. Now we come to a fascinating uh, doctrine that we have to build to, and before we get to it, I want to go back and review a couple of things. First of all, the one who keeps his commandments. Let's look at this phrase a minute. The one who keeps his commandments. This refers to the believer who is living inside that soul fortress. Now, I want you to realize that we have the diagrams of the soul fortress all over downstairs in prep school. These are just uh, sort of a concrete representation of an abstract reality. Somebody mentioned something to me uh, yesterday, and I want you to realize that nothing looks like that in your soul. You know, I, re- I remember years ago when... Um, Pastor Theme developed a doctrine called the edification complex of the soul, and there were actually people who thought there was something like that that was built inside your soul. You know, that's just a, an abstraction uh, of the kind of thing that's going on in the spiritual realm so that we can help understand it. There is a fortification of the soul that, that um, uh, strengthens our soul as a result of the application uh, of doctrine. So the believer living inside the soul, soul fortress is filled by means of the spirit, We're said to be walking by means of the Spirit because we're using those different spiritual skills to solve problems, make decisions in life so that we stay in fellowship rather than try to solve problems by the sin nature and by our own efforts. That means that as long as we continue to stay in that position, stay inside the soul fortress, we are abiding in Christ. And that term, abiding, is related to a noun form of the verb, which means to take up residence, to make a home. Now we're going to come back to that in a minute, but I, I want to start emphasizing that now. A home is a place where there is a, a family living, where there is a relationship developing. So the idea of abiding is also sort of, you can unpack that word to emphasize a more, a, a, a greater depth of fellowship. Second point when we abide in Christ he is also abiding in us notice that in the verse when he keeps the one who keeps his commandments abides in him but it's not just we're in fellowship with him but he's he's abiding in us and that abiding has to do with a richer level of fellowship it's a two way road here there is a reciprocity here in abiding Now that's something we haven't really developed a lot and we're going to have to develop that whole, this whole doctrine of reciprocity as we go through chapter four because what that will teach us is that what happens as we move to a higher level of spiritual maturity. But we're just going to start introducing the idea a little bit this morning. Now remember, at salvation, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, and God the Father all take up residence inside the believer positionally. Now what John teaches, and is really emphasizing in these sections, is that the believer that gets into spiritual maturity develops an intimacy of fellowship with all three members of the, of the Trinity, a, a two-way intimacy. Now this isn't mysticism. Don't think that, that this means that you're just, you know, is automatically going to know some things. See, that's, that's what we have to be aware of when we get into the first couple of verses of chapter four. That's the direction the charismatic and the mystical crowd has gone. But that's not what this is talking about. There, we, we have this greater level of intimacy because we spend more time with God. We learn who He is because we're spending more time studying His Word. Just like when When you and your spouse got married, you're spending more time together. You're learning more about each other, and as you learn more about each other, likes and dislikes and and, and the various moods that they go through, you learn to read them. You learn to forecast certain things about them, and, and you can predict their behavior. You know what they like. You know just exactly what to give them for a birthday present or or for a Christmas present or for a present to get out of the doghouse or whatever it is. You you, you know them, and that only comes by spending time together in, in many different circumstances and, and situations. And this is how the believer begins to know God and know things that God wants in his life. It's not because he has some sort of mystical flash of insight, but because he has so saturated his mind with the thinking of Christ. Remember, Paul calls the Word of God the mind of Christ in First Corinthians 2.16. We, we so saturate our thinking with his thinking that we begin to think like he thinks. And so we know what he wants, not because it's some mystical insight but because we know the word so well so john goes beyond simply the positional reality of our indwelling to the experiential reality of abiding so let's review where we stopped the last time i covered this i've added a couple of points the comparison of the indwelling and the filling of the spirit is two different ministries this is review for some of you, but for others you need to you're still wrestling with this. First of all, indwelling and filling both occur at salvation. Indwelling and filling both occur at salvation. So at the point of faith alone in Christ alone, we have um, eternal reality and temporal reality. Through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are entered into union with Christ, and as part of union with Christ, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and by Christ and by God the Father. But then we have an experiential reality. Sometimes we're walking by the Spirit or abiding in Christ. Sometimes we're not. When we're not, we're out here in darkness. Then we use First John 1.9 to get back back in fellowship. Now, indwelling and filling occur at salvation. The instant of salvation, you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, filled by the Holy Spirit. But as soon as you sin, which for most of us didn't take too long because we didn't know any better, uh, and even if we did know better, it didn't take long, we're out of fellowship, and we lose the filling of the Spirit. The But we don't lose the indwelling of the Spirit. So point one, indwelling and filling both occur at salvation. Point two, indwelling is related to our spiritual eternal position, and filling is related to experience. Third, indwelling of the Holy Spirit is related to the indwelling of Christ. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is related to the indwelling of Christ and making in us A temple of God. Filling, on the other hand, is related to abiding. So filling is related to abiding in Christ and indwelling of the Holy Spirit is related to the indwelling of Christ. Fourth, indwelling is related to our positional sanctification, our position in Christ. And filling is related to our experiential sanctification. Now... By experience, this has to do with what we experience on a day-to-day basis. You're not going to experience anything in terms of your position in Christ. The only way you know about that is because the Scripture tells you about that. You're not going to feel any different. You're not going to look any different. You're not going to wake up one morning and say, oh, I just feel so much more in Christ today. No, none of that. It's not ever emphasized or revealed through experience or feeling. Point number five, indwelling is a one-time event that takes place at salvation and it remains through your entire spiritual life and is the basis for all of the Spirit's ministries to you. Whereas point number six, the filling of the ministry, the filling of the Holy Spirit can be lost and the filling is related to learning, understanding, storing, and recalling Bible doctrine for application. Here are the three new points. Point number seven, the indwelling of the Holy, of the Spirit is the platform for the Spirit's ministry of filling. Because you're indwelt, He can fill you when you're in fellowship and He's not going to when you're out of fellowship. The filling of the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the platform, then, for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the filling of the Holy Spirit is related to his taking the Word of God and filling your soul with the Word of God, helping you understand it, storing it, and recalling it for application, which was point number six. Point number eight, the indwelling of the Spirit sets apart the believer's body in time to be a temple for the indwelling of Christ. So this has to do with the sanctification and setting apart your body. Now, the indwelling doesn't occur in the flesh, like the sin nature is in the flesh, the physical structure of the body, but the body is, just as the body is the home for the soul, which is immaterial, the body also becomes the whole, the home for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who creates a temple that is a dwelling place for Jesus Christ. How that happens will become more clear as we develop our study in 1 Corinthians in the first hour. Then point number nine, the indwelling, just as the indwelling of the Spirit becomes the platform for the filling of the Spirit, the indwelling of Christ is the platform for the abiding in Christ. The indwelling in Christ becomes the platform for the abiding in Christ, which has to do with, developing greater uh, intimacy and fellowship and rapport with Jesus Christ as we learn his word. That, all of this then, becomes the basis for the doctrine of reciprocity and fellowship. The doctrine of reciprocity. Let's look at five points to introduce the doctrine of reciprocity. First of all, what we see in this verse is that we don't just abide in Christ he abides in us. It's a two-way road. There, it's a mutuality. The more we abide in Christ, the more he abides in him. There is a, an element in this of growth and development and an increase in the level of our fellowship and the level of abiding. We abide in Christ and he abides in us is point number one. Point number two, up to this point, John has said uh, very little about abiding. He has said that the anointing abides are about this mutuality, this reciprocity. He has said that the anointing abides in us in two twenty seven, and that's related to the filling of the Holy Spirit when we cover two twenty seven. That the anointing abides in us, and that has to do with the filling of the Holy Spirit, as we are in fellowship with him in the Holy Spirit, and reciprocity fills us with his word, and that's part of the process of anointing. And in chapter 3, verse 15, John said, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So no murderer has eternal life abiding in him, and that, again, is experiential. It's not saying that a murderer can't be saved. See, that's the problem. If we get into making abiding an absolute, then we have to say, well, if you commit murder, you can't be saved. Well, what about David? David in the Old Testament committed murder. Moses committed murder in the Old Testament. It's amazing how many, how many murderers God used to write His Word. Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer. Saul of Tarsus who became Paul was a murderer. So if what John is saying here, if abiding is salvation, then he would be, then you have to say that no murderer can ever be saved. So, you, so, well, Moses and David and Paul won't ever make it to heaven. But what he is saying is that if you are a murderer and you're, you're not loving your brother, instead you're, you're hating him and you're murdering him, then there's no experience of the love of God in your life. There is no experience of the life that Christ has for you. Remember, Jesus said, I came to give life. That's salvation, eternal life, and to give it abundantly. That is the present experience of that eternal life. And it's a quality of life. And that's what John is emphasizing here, is that the murderer, because he isn't abiding, is not experiencing the quality of life that Christ came to give the believer. So twice he talks about this reciprocity. The anointing abides in us, and the eternal eternal life can abide in us, but if we're disobedient, it won't. Point number three, Jesus emphasized this in the upper room, uh, in the upper room discourse. There he commanded the disciples, abide in me and I in you. Notice that this reciprocity. You abide in me and I will abide in you. If we're not abiding in Christ, he doesn't abide in us. He indwells us, but he doesn't abide in us. Abide in you and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. We abide in him, and when he abides in us and returns that, that's what produces the fruit. It's not our abiding in him that produces the fruit. That's the condition. It's his abiding, his reciprocity, the reciprocal action where he's residing back in us and he produces the fruit, and that's produced through God the Holy Spirit. John fifteen five. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, because it is Christ through the Holy Spirit producing the fruit. Now the fruit is Galatians five twenty two and 23, which is the fruit or production of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, against which there is no law. It is character. So what is happening here is that Christ abides back in us through the Holy Spirit. He produces his character in us. And that is what the transformation of the Christian life is all about. We can't do this on our own. We can't go out and just automatically love people who are obnoxious and despicable. Maybe you can, but I can't. I want to run over them with my car. But um, you know, we only God can make that kind of transformation in our life, and it comes through what. Not by trying to, okay, today I'm gonna, to, we're gonna have the fruit of the spirit in my life today, I'm gonna to see something. No, it doesn't happen that way. It happens because we're learning His Word, we saturate our thinking with His Word in fellowship, and then He produces it. Just like I can't go out and make, I've got something, I don't know what they are, Nell will tell me later, I planted last year. And, and they've grown and they're huge, they're this tall, and they've got buds all over them. And I've been trying to get these gum things to to blossom for like two weeks. I'm putting fertilizer on them and watering them, and you know they're getting lots of sun. And they finally started yesterday, but I couldn't hurry up the process. All I could do is make sure they got the right nutrition and they were in the right the right soil. See, that's all we can do in the Christian life. We have to make sure we're taken in the Word and we're in fellowship, and eventually. You wake up one day and you realize that you've been doing the satisfying the two conditions that God said. Then the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ have been abiding in you and producing fruit, and it begins to manifest itself. But it takes time, and you can't rush it, and you can't make it happen any more than I can make make those flowers, those blossoms bloom. I can just provide the right conditions, and eventually that inner dynamic that I have no control over produces the blossom, produces the fruit. So Jesus says, He abides in. If we abide in Him and He in us, that mutuality. Then point number four: When this mutual abiding takes place, it's evidenced by doctrine being applied. It is evidenced by doctrine being applied. You will be applying doctrine in your life. That presupposes that you know doctrine. You can't apply what you don't know, and you can't know what you haven't take the time, the energy, and the discipline to learn. Because this doesn't come natural to you or to me. You have to be in Bible class day in and day out. You have to get tapes. And when you're driving around or, or doing whatever, you listen to tapes so that you go over it again and again. And, and as time goes by, things begin to click. You, you hear things. Sometimes you hear t- things six or seven times before suddenly it begins to make sense. And, and you're starting to put things together uh, in terms of your own spiritual life. So when this mutual abiding takes place, it's evidenced by doctrine being applied. This is John fifteen seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, that's the teaching in the Scripture. Not only are we abiding in Christ in terms of fellowship, but we have to let his word abide in us. Ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. That then impacts our prayer life because when his word abides in us, we're going to know how he thinks what His priorities and values are, and that's going to change how we pray and what we pray for. This is the same thing that John said in just the, the previous verse, in um, verse 22 of 1 John 3. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Why do we keep His commandments? Because His word is abiding in us. And then point five, this is further related in the Gospel of John to an advanced relationship with God the Father. In John 14.23 we read, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So how do you know if you love Jesus? Because you had a rosy glow? Because you went to church and sang wonderful hymns and went home feeling feeling good and comforted and warm? no. We know we love Jesus because we keep his word. It's very objective. It's very clear. It's real easy to figure this out. It has nothing to do with how you feel. It has everything to do with keeping his word. But in order to keep his word, you have to know his word. And to know his word, you have to be in Bible class and you have to discipline yourself to learn the words. I'm sounding like a broken record. So these are the five, first five points in developing the doctrine of reciprocity and fellowship. Now let's go to the next verse and start in 1 John chapter 4. See, the, the division break is really at, at, at between 2.23 and 2.24. The new subject, it starts with 2.24, not four one. I mean 3.24, not 4. one. The break is between 23 and 24, chapter 3. Chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know that the Spirit of God, colon. Okay, now, put a big line there between um, God and every spirit. Because notice, he doesn't say, you don't have the introduction of that second clause there after the colon with the phrase like because, or in order that, or if. See, those would indicate subordinate clauses or explanatory clauses. What you have is a, is an independent clause. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That's an independent clause. And whenever you have the by this followed by an independent clause, the by this refers to the preceding, and not what comes after. So, put a period there instead of a colon and a and a slash mark to indicate that that every spirit is a new sentence and goes to the ne- to the next verse, and the by this goes back to four one. How do you know the spirit of God? Because you got a feeling, because you get that ooh. That rosy glow and now Jesus is talking to you. His spirit is communicating to my spirit that, that there's a false teacher somewhere around. You know, that's what happens in these charismatic churches because nobody wants to take the time to do the serious exegesis in the Greek to try to figure out what these verses mean. The, the by this refers to 4-1. How do you know the Spirit of God? Because you have tested the spirits to see whether they are from God. That's how you know. Now, we have to understand what that means. How do you test the spirits? Well, first of all, I think we need to understand what this word spirit or spirits means when, Paul, when John uses the word pneuma here. Now, we've gone through this in 1 Corinthians. We've done it before. There's about nine different meanings in the Greek for the word pneuma. It can mean breath, wind. It can mean spirit in terms of the Holy Spirit. It can mean spirit in terms of an evil spirit or a demon. It can mean spirit in terms of the thinking part of the soul. It can mean spirit in terms of an attitude. Remember, Paul told Timothy that we don't have a spirit of timidity, but a but it's our spirit of fear, but a spirit of courage, a spirit of boldness. See, there he's using that word spirit in terms of an attitude a thinking, a belief system, and that's how John is using that here. Test every thought. Test every person who's teaching a thought to see if it is from God or not. Test the thoughts. Test the attitudes. Evaluate. Now, the word for test here is a word that we ran into also last week in 1 Corinthians 3. It's the verb documazo, which means to evaluate. Now, in order to evaluate anything, what do you have to have? You have to have some kind of objective secondary standard by which you evaluate something. Well, what's the objective standard by which you are to evaluate various thoughts, various ideas, various teachings that people have? What's that objective criterion? It's the Word of God. So if you don't know the Word of God, you can't evaluate the spirits. This isn't somebody that, see, charismatic theology comes along and says the way you do this is you have the, the gift of discerning, discernment of spirits. And they completely distort that concept. And, and, and God is just going to somehow directly speak to you and, and, and let you know, uh, sort of like some kind of a Christian version of a Ouija board, whether this is, uh, from God or not. Well, that, that's not what the text emphasizes. It emphasizes uh, an objective means of evaluating various teachings and various people, whether it's whether it's of God or not, whether it's sources from God, to discern truth from error, and that's what John is emphasizing. He says, "Don't believe every every teaching." Why? The, the, the people. Who he's addressing have false teachers that have come out of Jerusalem, used to be associated with the apostles, and now they're teaching some false things about Christ that Jesus really wasn't the Messiah, really didn't die physically on the cross. They're teaching various false ideas, and so John says, "Don't believe everything that anybody comes along and says to you. Don't you just just because somebody went to a Dallas seminary or they went to, to." Trinity Seminary, went to chafer Seminary or, or came out of Baraka Church or wherever it is, just because they came from that, don't just assume that they know what they're talking about and don't assume because they say it that it's right. Evaluate. How do you evaluate? You have to have that external absolute criterion to evaluate, which means you have to know the Word of God. You have to know doctrine. Well, how do you know doctrine? Well, to know doctrine, you have to learn doctrine, which means, once again, that I'm... See, I'm repeating myself too much. You have to be in Bible class week in, week out, listen to tape, study. It doesn't come easy. And primarily in order to evaluate any system of thought, you have to know the truth. There's the old... Um, Illustration that in the FBI when they would train their agents or train bank tellers to spot a, a, a counterfeit bill, they wouldn't teach them all about counterfeits, they would teach them about uh, what a genuine article looked like and they would just spend a, uh, they would be locked up in a room with a $10 bills and $20 bills, 50s and 100s all day, and they would just feel them, crumple them up, look at them, hold them up to the light, and, and get to know every single detail of what the genuine article looked like, and then when something false came along, they could more easily spot it. But you also have to learn some things about... Uh, false teaching and what's going on today and, and, cause sometimes it's real easy to not, to, to, to be deceived by things that are very, very close to the truth. And so it helps sometimes to be aware of some of these, some of these things and, and the way that, that I recommend developing some discernment is whenever you examine or evaluate any teaching, any religious system, any philosophy, just break it down into the basic categories A theology, for example, theology proper. What does it say about God? Do they believe in the Trinity? Do they believe that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are eternal and equal in all of their attributes? Do they believe that Jesus Christ is eternal? That there never was a time when Jesus Christ did not exist? Do they believe the Holy Spirit is a distinct and separate personality within the Godhead? So you ask questions like that. What do they believe about the Bible? Do they believe the Bible is the word of God without error and infallible? Or do they believe the Bible uh, contains the word of God? See, if it contains the word of God, then it may contain some error also. Or do they believe that the Bible is authoritative in faith and practice? This is something you really have to watch out for. In the doctrinal statements of some, some churches and seminaries. Uh, they believe, that it sounds great, doesn't it? I believe the Bible is authoritative in all areas of faith and practice. Well, what about areas of science? What about areas when it touches on meteorology? What about areas when it touches on, uh, like Noah's flood, when it touches on history, when it touches on economics? What about those areas? Well, see, they left that out because it's not what they say in these statements that's important, it's what they don't say in the statement. You have to ask, what is the problem of man? What is man's basic problem? Is he uh, constitutionally uh, a sinner? Is he born in, with a sin defect? Or, or is he just ill? Is he dead or is he sick? If he's sick, he can help himself. If he's dead, then somebody else has to do all the work. What do they believe about in, in soteriology, in, in salvation? What do you have to do to be saved? Is it some kind of uh, faith plus something or is it faith alone, in Christ alone? Uh, what do they believe about um, how you grow as a believer, the, the role of the law? What do they believe about uh, how you uh, get have a relationship or maintain a relationship with God? How, what do they believe about the future and future judgment and the significance of future judgment? You just categorize these basic areas, and then you ask those questions, and then you compare it to Scripture. So you, we have to have this framework for evaluating what people teach to see whether or not what, what is being taught comes from God and is in the Word of God, or whether it is contrary to the Word of God. And it is by this that we know whether or not the Spirit of God is involved in the teaching. And that's why you, and you break between the first part of verse 2 and the second part. And next week we'll come back and see what that means in the second part of 2 and on down into verses 3 and following. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to, to be challenged with, uh, all that you have given us, sometimes it, it appears as if your word is seems complicated and complex, and that's because we are removed by 2,000 years, and it was written in another language. But you have provided those who are gifted to teach, to communicate your word, and to study your word and to give us the truth. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and to see how they relate to our own lives. You're challenging us to move to a higher level of spiritual maturity, a higher level of intimacy with you. And we pray that we would be responsive to that challenge. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Father, we pray that uh, they would realize that all that is necessary is faith alone in Christ alone. Right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is believe Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of joining a church. It's a simple matter of believing that Jesus Christ did everything for you at the cross. And by faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life. Father, we thank you for the things that we are learning as we study in First John and pray that we would respond to that challenge. In Christ's name, amen.